It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If this is the first time you heard the show, hey, welcome aboard. If you've heard the show before, the first part of the show we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about history and a little bit about maybe a little bit more about religion with Father Robert Sirico of the Acton Institute. Meanwhile, we have one of our attorneys here, Nicole Donnelly. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Hello, hello. It's always a pleasure to be here with you guys. So what issues come up recently you brought up to me just before we got on the air? I have a lot of people that are coming to me and saying, okay, husband's in the nursing home, wife is in the nursing home, maybe we're looking at nursing home Medicaid for mom, dad, and, you know, Medicaid is not even a thought in their head. Their number one thought is, I need to sell the house in order to pay this nursing home bill. And when you hear that, you know, I know it takes us aback, you're going to tell the people why, if there's ever a good time to sell your house for in order to pay the nursing home. But the number one thing that's coming up for me is they're getting this advice from social workers, from the people who work at the nursing home, who really don't have their best interest at heart. They just want to get paid. And I don't think the people are seeing that come through. So I think it's important to talk about. And my question to you, and I think the masses have the same question. Is it ever a good idea to sell your house to pay your nursing home bill? Well, a lot depends on the circumstances, but there. first of all, when somebody's in a nursing home, they own a house. The first thing we want to look at, are there some exempt transfers we can do? And an exempt transfer is, means if somebody goes to a nursing home, you have to, if you apply for Medicaid, medical assistance, Medicaid, to pay for your nursing home bill, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. But there's some transactions that do not incur a penalty under that five-year look-back period. So let's say if we have a husband and wife, husband goes to a nursing home. The husband can transfer that house over to his wife. Now, we probably want to do it in trust to avoid probate on the wife's estate. But the husband can transfer the house to his wife. There's no penalty for Medicaid nursing homes. So if a husband transfers his assets to his wife's name today in August, on September 1st, the husband can apply for medical assistance, Medicaid, to pay for his nursing home bill. So one, you know, is the person married? 
and occasionally, which is happening a little bit more today, does the person get married? There are a lot of people who are living together that are not married. And if they transfer all their assets to their significant other, they're not eligible for Medicaid. But if they transfer their assets to their spouse, they are eligible for Medicaid. So, um, you know, that's one thing to look at. If If you're married, you get married today, transfer the assets tomorrow, you transfer into a spouse, those assets are protected from the nursing home. Uh, if you have a disabled child, and a lot of people overlook this because, you know, what's what's a disabled child? Well, if your parent is alive, you are a child. It's because when I bring this up a lot of times, well, you know, I'm 60 years old. I'm not a child. But if your parent is alive, you are a child. And there are a lot of people that have some kind of disability. They can't work. They're not in a wheelchair. They're not mentally disabled. But maybe they have a bad back and they had to take early retirement and retire and they're collecting maybe Social Security retirement. They're not even collecting Social Security disability. But they may be disabled as far as the Social Security regulations go. And in that event, transfers to a disabled child are exempt from penalty. So if you have a disabled child, you can transfer the assets. In this case, we're talking about the house. To a disabled child, save it from a nursing home. We want to do it trust-wise so we get it out tax-free. Also, if we have a child living in the house for more than two years, what they call a caretaker child, uh, and it's very easy to prove a caretaker trial. If we transfer the assets to a child who lives in the same house for two or more years, again, that's an exempt transfer. We can put it in trust, save that house from nursing home bills. And lastly, if we have a brother or sister living in the same house, for one or more years, sharing expenses, again, very liberally construed, that if we have a brother or sister living in the same house for one or more years, we can transfer those assets to the, the sibling who lives in the house and protect it from nursing home bills. So that's the that's the first thing we're looking for, is, the, is there an exam transfer? Now, again, mostly if there's a spouse, you know, like some people, I think one example you just gave, you got a husband and wife. Husband's going to a nursing home and the family's saying, oh, can we, we can sell a house to pay for dad's nursing home bill. Where does that leave mom? Homeless. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the best plan. Um, so if, if you, you're in one of these crisis situations, give us a call. We'll try to work something out. And if you do sell the house, we can do certain things to at least save probably more than half the equity in the house. You got a million dollar house. I would bet your worst case, you might lose three, four hundred thousand to a nursing home, but we can probably save, you know, the rest. We can probably save the rest of the house for your family, and and, and I mean, good stewardship. We don't just give away our assets. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking to with our next guest, Father Robert Sirico, um, about good stewardship, and that we owe it to society and our families to to make something out of ourselves economically to be productive, to invest our assets, to get the most out of our material life as we can, as long as we deal ethically. And Father Sarik has been on the show before. He's co-founder of the Acton Institute. And some of you may know his brother who passed away fairly recently, Paulie Walnuts from The Sopranos. Um, But it's a little bit different personality. But Father Sarika grew up in Brooklyn, and we're going to be talking about growing up in Brooklyn and, and some of the advantages we had growing up in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s, 
and Father Sirico's attitude toward economics. He's a world famous economist, and he's going to be talking about the gospel and economics. And that's going to be our next guest. You listen to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Thank you, Nicole. Sounds good. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or ConnorsAndSullivan.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, I I never really thought of the Gospels, you know, being economic lessons or investment lessons. And I guess I was wrong, but to... Correct me on this. I've got Father Robert Sirico, the one of the founders of the Acton Institute. Welcome to Connor's Corner, Father. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now I saw an article in Legatus, Investing Advice from Jesus. Be faithful and productive. <laughs> so what's that about? Right. Well, let, let me qualify this for just a moment because I, I want to be careful. Of course, Jesus isn't giving us tips on the New York Stock Exchange, right? And he's not teaching us supply-side economics or Austrian economics or anything like that. What he is doing is laying the basis of human ethical action, how people who have to act on things 
uh, can do it in a way that best promotes their dignity. And after all is said and done, economics is human action. That's really what it is. So in that sense, Jesus lays the foundation for proper economic thinking, not in an ideological, much less than a political sense. And that you, you summarize it very well when you, you mentioned that it, it, what Jesus is talking about with regard to investments is how human beings can act in a way that is suitable to their dignity. Now, it, your, your book is about the parables, and of course, the, the article w- yes. mentions the, the parable about the talents. Can you summarize that for right. some of our audience? Yeah, mo- most everybody, uh, who knows in this generation, <laughs> yes, right. know the scripture. You know, the, the parable of the talents is where the ma- Jesus tells the story of a master going on a journey, and he leaves certain talents with his servants. And the particular gospel I use is Matthew's gospel because the the story is told twice in a slightly different way. But in this one, he gives one five, one two, and one one talent. And then he asks them to be fruitful with their talents. He comes back after a while, and the one who had five has ten, the one who had two has four, and the one who has one, he's really the key person to look at here, because he's very telling. Uh, He buried his talent and returns the talent, just the one talent. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, and now I go into my analysis, that's what the parable is, but my analysis is that it's interesting to see, first of all, that this guy who returns the one didn't lose the one, didn't steal the one, but hid it, buried it in the ground. And what he says to the master is what is very revealing to the, to the man who was his benefactor, in effect. He says, I knew that you were a cruel man gathering where you have not scattered and uh, he says, so I was afraid, and I hid it in the ground. So it tells you what the attitude of this servant is toward the master. And as I'm reading that as, as both a priest and a bit of an economist, I'm hearing the critique of Marx <laughs> in this, saying that the free market system is a system of exploitation, that uh, people who are the entrepreneurs or the investors or the bankers gather where they do not scatter. They have uh, pulled in money, but they really haven't uh, done anything to produce it. It's the laborer, the worker, who does all of the work. And uh, Jesus, in this parable, gives us this illustration of this dynamic at work. And it's just rich in in a lot of different ways if you think about it. And I go much more extensively into this in in that chapter in the book. Yeah. Now, what... What is the what, what's the name of the book? One and what's your what's the idea that you're trying to promote? So the name of the book is the economics of the parables. It's available on Amazon and you know all over. Um, and what I'm trying to promote is that the world of economy is not so distant from the world of spirituality and ethics. So much so that Jesus, in using these illustrations in various 
of the parables. I, I use 13 of them, but there are even more. He's using economic metaphors to point to something beyond economics, point to a parable and Jesus' parables usually begin, very often begin with this phrase, the kingdom of God may be likened unto, and then uh, this man going on a voyage and then trusting his talents to his servants. So he's saying the kingdom, you can learn something from the world of economy about the kingdom of God. That's basically what I'm saying. Now, you mentioned Marxism, and I know, I think that's the idea, intellectual idea is pretty well beaten. But, you know, there, there were a lot of people who used to think that Marxism and Christianity were on the same side of history and, you know, liberation oh, yeah. theology. And, and what would you say to that? Exactly. Well, you know, I, I can't say it any better <laughs> than Winston Churchill said. Uh, well, I'll give you two quotes, one from Winston Churchill and one from Mother Teresa. Can you imagine? Uh, Winston Churchill said, the, and he's got this in the back of his mind, what you've just set up here. He says that the, uh, the, the early Christians, the early so the, the socialism of early Christianity said, all that is mine is yours. But the modern socialists say, all that you have, all that is yours is mine. Hmm. So he's juxtaposing the inspiration of Christianity that shared with people against the coercive mechanisms of the state that socialism advocates that want to redistribute wealth and take money from other people. Uh, and then the quote from uh, from Mother Teresa, this is, I think this, this is the pithiest den uh, uh, um, takedown of Marxism in history. She said, we do not have the right to condemn the rich. Uh, we do not believe in class warfare. We believe in class encounter where the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. And that's the counterbalance to socialism. This is undermines uh, Marxism and liberation theology to a, a, a really great extent. Why, why do you think liberation theology and Marxism had such a uh, an, an appeal, let's say, in the 70s and 80s? Maybe, of course, some people have it even today. Well, you know, the appeal of it really wasn't a popular appeal as such. It was an appeal on the part of intellectuals who it didn't emerge from, uh, you know, the favelas of uh, South America. It emerged in German seminaries where uh, uh, Latin American priests were studying and they came back and brought this kind of Marxist dialectic to bear. Uh, and then, you know, simple people just accepted the word. But the result of it has been a, a, a very severe decline in uh, Catholic participation throughout Latin America. This accounts for, I think, why many of the evangelicals and the Pentecostals have had far more success because many of the Catholics have abandoned preaching the gospel 
and upholding the teachings of the church and the traditions of the church. And the evangelicals have said, no, you stop drinking, go to work, support your family. <laughs> and um, it, it's a remarkable failure, liberation theology has been, despite the fact that it's still um, uh, attractive to uh, leftist thinking and uh, missionaries. You know, when I went to Nicaragua in 1990, uh, the people I saw and the people I talked to, the nuns and priests who were serving the poor, said that uh, this is a phenomenon of uh, North American missionaries coming down here and trying to cram this stuff down our throats. Uh, we we don't believe in this stuff. Uh, you just talk to simple people on the street, uh, simple people in the church, and they don't believe in it. Getting, getting back to economics, the Acton Institute, what is the Acton Institute and who was Lord Acton? So Lord Acton is probably best known for saying power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was a 19th century uh, intellectual. In his day, he was considered one of the most well-read people uh, in Europe. Uh, he was a Catholic in England who studied in Germany because he couldn't go to the, you know, Oxford University or Cambridge University um, at the time that he was studying this in the mid uh, 19th century. Uh, and his theme of his, a lot of his writing was both liberty and the importance of religion, uh, rightly understood, because he said, you know, we have to have freedom, but then we have to have a reason for freedom. Uh, freedom isn't enough. Freedom isn't a virtue in itself. He said that, that uh, the, the liberty that we speak of is not the freedom to do what you want, but the freedom to do what you ought. So there's this kind of moral end to our freedom that he underscored. And he, he wrote many, many books um, uh, and essays, uh, actually no books, but essays on this topic. Um, and I founded the Acton Institute because of my own experience with the left in the 1970s, the early 1970s. And then when I came back to the church, uh, I, I, what prompted my return to the church was reading economics. Uh, and uh, I recovered my vocation, went to seminary, and then found the same stuff that I had left on the, <laughs> the protest marches and sit-ins that I was involved in in the 70s. Uh, I found it in the seminary. As you, you noted, you know, the liberation theology was all the rage in the early 80s. Uh, and um, when I got out of seminary, I said, I've got to do something about this. And the result was the founding of the Acton Institute with a colleague of mine who is now at, a layman, who is now the president of the Institute. And what is the purpose of the Institute? I mean, I think you've kind of laid it out, but let's hit it harder. It, it, it's... It's to educate uh, religious leaders of all denominations, uh, influencers, if you will, to use the, the current phrase, uh, people who have influence in their respective groups. So that would be seminarians, it would be journalists, bloggers, missionaries, Sunday school teachers uh, of all denominations. Uh, I want to underscore that it's an ecumenical effort uh, on the moral potential for the free economy that it's not enough just to have sentiments about how to help the poor. What you have to do is appreciate that it takes business to help people rise out of poverty. 
people don't rise out of poverty by economic redistribution. They rise out of poverty by smart investment and building businesses. Now, that doesn't sound very sexy, but that's the normative way in which people rise out of poverty. The last 200 years, we've seen people rise out of poverty astounding rates. In world history, you know, if you, you look at a chart of economic income, mostly for all of history, it was subsistence. And then about 200 years ago, it's like a hockey puck. It just goes, it rises. We're living in the richest period of human history. And the reason for that isn't redistribution, isn't socialism. It's that markets developed in countries. People traded. Uh, businesses grew. Uh, and that, that is a neglected fact, especially in philosophy and theology circles. What, what, what do you think are, are the enemies of free economics today? I mean, you, you, you said it. We, you know, the, the, the world has developed great wealth in, in the last couple of hundred years, but obviously some people are still opposed to it. So who's opposed to it? And what should we be doing that as, as, you know, individuals? Well, I think there are several pockets that people can oppose to it. Politicians, of course, because they like power. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what's a politician going to do if he's not distributing money, right? Redistributing money and offering favors to people to vote for them. Uh, uh, and I think that many in the church and many morally sensitive people um, without an economic background, without an understanding of what I just said about how people get out of poverty, are concerned in the name of the poor that they want to advocate these systems of redistribution. And I think they're confused on the level that I indicated, you know, what Churchill said about a false understanding of, um, of what social concern really is. Um, so I think uh, from the churches you find this, from the political sector you find this, from people who just don't have the knowledge of, uh, who haven't been inoculated against um, the, the claims of socialism. And I think what needs to be done, first of all, we have to have people who are ethical in business. And by that I mean uh, business people who don't go to the trough, who aren't looking for politicians and lobbying politicians to um, to hinder their competitors. I mean, a lot of American capitalism isn't really free market capitalism. It's crony capitalism. And, you know, the majority of major corporations get various breaks, either in the form of tax subsidies or tax favors or um, legislation that inhibits their competition, which is another form of subsidy. Uh, and I think uh, big business can be very detrimental to the free market, which is counterintuitive. I mean, the socialists think uh, all the corporations want to support uh, f free enterprise, and they don't. Just just look at the lobbyists in Washington, D.C. You know, during the worst of the, the economic turndown the last few years, the only economy that grew, the only city that had an economy that grew is where? Do you know where? Washington, D.C. Exactly. Now, ask yourself why that was the case. They don't produce anything there. They produce regulations there. 
But everybody goes there to to lobby politicians. Nobody ever lobbies me. Why? <laughs> because I don't have anything to give them. Do you ever so get? F- I think we need. Go ahead. What's that? Now I was going to ask you: Do you ever get frustrated because sometimes I feel some members of the clergy, you know, Catholic, are incredibly naive as far as politics are concerned and economics. Yeah, they are. They are. I'm frustrated all the time. That's why I started this institute uh, to counterbalance that. Uh, you know, and I, I have to say, after 33 years, we've had some good success. Uh, some drawbacks in the last few years, but I think in general, um, more and more. If you talk to younger, if we're talking Catholic now, if you talk to younger priests, I'm talking about 40 and under. They're much more sensible about these questions than guys my age. I'm 72, uh, who grew up in the in the 60s and 70s. All right, so I guess we're roughly the same age growing up in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. Now, I'm I'm from Our Lady of Angels Parish. Been here forever, except for three years in the okay. army. I haven't moved three blocks. God bless you. <laughs> Can you still find an egg cream in Brooklyn? No, I don't. I, I guess you can, but I don't know where. My my uh, my friend lives not not far away from me, and uh, he brings his kids over, and I make them egg creams and malted. Uh, I, I have the malted maker that uh, our folks had um, at the candy store we had on the Coney Island Avenue and Avenue J. I have that same old Hamilton Beach green, pale green uh, malted maker. You remember those? Yes. <laughs> Well, you could get an egg cream all over back then in the in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, or a lime Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> now, I th- I think we had a great advantage growing up in Brooklyn because we met people from all over the world. Still do, but I remember Incredible. a story you 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 told some years ago. You know about a woman who was in a concentration camp. Can you repeat that for our, for our audience? Sure. Well, uh, so I'm about five years old when this happened. Uh, We lived above a Lionel train store on Coney Island Avenue. This is before we had the candy store, the luncheonette. And we had one of those very small apartments. My two brothers had one little bitty bedroom with bunk beds. My sister slept on the couch in the living room. And my parents had the window that looked onto Coney Island Avenue. I had a cot or crib in the corner. And one day I was in this little bitty kitchen looking out and these were, you know, how you can see the apartment across from you. It was a kind of air shaft to get to the roof for roof access. And I was watching Mrs. Schneider. Uh, she was doing something. She was making something. And I was watching her put together the, they, they were rugula, you, you know, these pastries, these delicious pastries. That and you I still can get in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, that's where I have to order them from. Uh, so she's making them, and I'm watching her roll up the dough and put it in her Wedgwood oven and back and forth and back and forth. And pretty soon I smell the rugula, the, the cinnamon and the sugar and the walnuts and all that coming out of her kitchen to mine. I, I'm peering over my windowsill as this is happening. She never looked at me for a moment until she pulled out the last tray. And she put it on the uh, windowsill, and she said, "You'll come out, give you to eat." And so I scampered over the 
windowsill and I held out my greedy little hands and she put a napkin over my hands and proceeded to place these luscious warm rugula onto the napkin and as she did this I noticed up her forearm were a series of blue tattooed numbers um, and I went back in my my uh, apartment and hid the rugula from my my siblings <laughs> and uh my mom was in the house and i said to ma why does I, I and my memory of it is that i whispered this so i must have known something uh, i said why does mrs schneider have numbers on her arm and that's what my mother told me she's the way she, my mother put it to me was um you remember when you watched uh, the Cowboys and Indians shows on Saturday morning? I said, yeah. She said, what do the Cowboys do with the calves? I said, they lasso them. And she said, and then what did they do? I said, then they brand them. And she said, why do they brand them? She, I said, because then every other cowboy knows that this calf belongs to that cowboy. And my mother said, that's what some people did to Mr. and Mrs. Schneider. And that's why they're refugees why they came here. I, I thought refugee, refugee was a person from another, from the country of refuge. I thought it was another nationality. And um, that was etched in my mind. It formed my whole thinking about human dignity. And, uh, and I went through the whole of the 60s with that in my head. And even though I was confused for a period of time uh, about my own advocacy for uh, socialist ideas in the, in the 70s, uh, I came back to that, um, so it was a real, a real lesson. And I know that not many, not many kids growing up in Brooklyn have that memory anymore because all those folks have have gone. They died. Yeah, I mean, I w- I was privileged to know, you know, in our practice or whatever, we deal in elder law, and I was privileged to know dozens of them. And you know, I, my understanding is when when they first came over, when they were sixty, until uh, they were seventy. They never talked about it. And then at some point, never. they started telling stories when they were 70 or 80. And I was privileged to hear a lot yeah. of those stories. Yeah, I, I would hear some of the stories from their my, my friends, their their kids. Uh, but they always, I said, could I ask your parents this question? And they would say, no, 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 they never talk about it. Don't, um, don't say anything about it. It was almost like they were, I don't know, ashamed or... I don't know what the the sense was, but I'm glad that shifted. And now we have, of course, there's a whole organization that's documented on on video these uh, stories of uh, people who survived the, the horrors of the Holocaust. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to refer to one after we get off the air. But what uh, it was a woman is on the train to Auschwitz and. I'll talk to her, uh, you know, the audience. I'm not going to take up your time. Let me ask you something. You said yeah. you recovered your vocation. What was happening to you? What What was your journey? Well, uh, it's long and complex, so I'll, I'll make it very concise. I'm going to write an autobiography uh, and tell it all. But basically in the um, – so it would have been the 60s. Uh, this was at the time of the Second Vatican Council – Um, I was trying to find my way, and I I went to some priests and asked some questions, not at Regina Pachis, but elsewhere. And I just drifted from my faith. And then uh, in the 70s, got caught up in um, 
uh, you know, social change movements, the anti-war movement, the uh, feminist movement, the gay movement, the great boycott. I had moved to California by this time, and uh, it was there that I was involved with Jane Fonda and uh, a lot of these movements. And finally, um, after a few years of that, uh, activism was my whole life at the time. I was looking for my vocation still. You know, as I look at it now, I, I understand what was happening. But um, somebody introduced me to some some economic books, Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises and other writers like that. And as I began to read, it's like the light began to go on in the room. And interestingly enough, these writers were all secular, uh, not not religious, not Christian, uh, but the systematic way of thinking and the intellectual life, uh, it drew me to. And then I began to read other things about history, and it invoked in me a, a memory of when I was a kid, and the nuns would teach us from the Baltimore Catechism, which was a way of thinking. It wasn't just what to think, but it was how to think, how to use reason and uh, how to prove things and and it, what that reading of economics did was precipitate in me a, a reconsideration of the direction of my life and my faith and over a period of this is over a period of years um i came back to my faith i went to college because i didn't go to college my, my whole family we were working class italians you know i'm the only one of my my immediate family that went to college and it was in college that I rediscovered my vocation, um, had some spiritual direction, and then went to seminary and was ordained. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, again, the name of the book, The Economics of the Paragles, published by Regnery Press, which is the same people that own this radio station. Um, but I look forward to reading it. And, you know, listen, thank you for what you're doing, because it must not always be easy. You know, it hasn't been easy, but it's always been rewarding. Uh, I'm just grateful to God that I was able to recover my, you know, to end up at the end of my life. Or, you know, it's not, pray God, not the, the end, the end, but, you know, it's the, the other side of it. Um, and to have worked with the Acton Institute uh, all these years and as a parish priest. It's been a joy. Let, let me just also let your listeners know the Acton Institute has a great website, acton.org. And if you go there and, you know, search the thing, look for Mrs. Schneider. And there's a video. We recreated that whole story I just told you and, uh, and made a whole Brooklyn, little Brooklyn film from the 50s. About a 10-minute thing that I think uh, they would enjoy. We always love stuff about Brooklyn. Father, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Good to be with you. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. 
because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, you, you know, we're talking to Father Sarika about survivors of the Holocaust, and you know, one, one of the good things about my job, I speak to a lot of people and I learn a lot of history. And when we were talking, you know, he was talking about the lady he knew across the hall in Brooklyn. And we, we you know, we were talking about off, you know, off the interview, we we're talking about some other people. But there's one story I think that is really he was talking about Spielberg making uh, a documentary about some of the survivors of the Holocaust. And one of our clients who's passed away now, Mr. Hartog, uh, she was one of those people interviewed by Spielberg. And her story was 
uh, memorable, to put it mildly. She was, you know, arrested in Holland. She didn't even know she was Jewish, but her grandmother was Jewish. And, of course, the Nazis, if you were part Jewish, you were, you know, in danger. So she was arrested. She was in a work camp in what is now the western part of Germany. And she was told she was going to be shipped on the train to Auschwitz. And Auschwitz was such a great place. She'd have more food, better food, have more time off, better work conditions and everything else. I mean, the Nazis were masters at manipulating people. And so she's getting on the line to get on the train to Auschwitz. And she says in her mind, a German soldier comes up to her, starts yelling and screaming at her and says, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm throwing you off this train. And he grabbed her off the line and threw her, you know, to the ground and said, get back to the camp. And of course, at the time, she was she was heartbroken because she thought she was going to a better place. And she didn't realize till after the war that the German soldier had saved her life. And it was always a mystery to her. She didn't know whether it was um, as a result, you know, did he feel sorry for her because she was a young girl? Did he save one person a day? Uh, she never knew that, and it was a mystery. And that was recorded by Steven Spielberg in his, you know, stories about the Holocaust. So those stories are worth remembering. Those people are worth remembering. You know, unfortunately, I think most of them right now have passed on. But their memory really, you know, shouldn't be forgotten. And, you know, but I have some exciting news for next week. And I know some of you may oh, be yeah? bored to death, but we're going to talk to Bert Carnes, <laughs> who did a book on Lawrence Tierney. Now, you know, back in the, 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 the 70s or whatever, I was talking to my father one day and I said, who's your favorite movie actor? And, you know, I expected something from the 30s or 40s like Errol Flynn or John Wayne or one of those guys we used to like his movies. And he said, Lawrence Tierney. And at the time, I said, who's Lawrence Tierney? I, I really didn't know who he was. And, of course, since then, I've learned an awful lot about Lawrence Tierney. And every time Lawrence Tierney's in a movie, you know, I always look to watch it. Now, Lawrence Tierney in the in the 40s was Dillinger, I think one of the best film noirs ever, Born to Kill, Beth. That's that is frightening, and you know that's that's just one of those things. What what is a girl's worst nightmare? Get involved with the wrong guy. Holy smoke! That's one of the scariest movies I think I've ever seen. Right. That's that is right there with Cape Fear. You know the the Robert Mitchum one. I mean, he is Tierney is scary. Now, of course, Tierney had his problems with alcohol and fighting and so forth, but he pops up 40 years later and tough guys don't dance. And I think he gives a great I think oh, he absolutely. gives a great performance in that one. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I know him, you know, my generation, everyone's going to know him from Reservoir Dogs is the old man who brings everybody in. So and also is Elaine's mother on Elaine's uh, father on Seinfeld yeah, for a brief, brief. stint. <laughs> They they go over that in the interview as well. Yeah. So Lawrence Tierney, I, I, again, it brought back some old memories. You know, like, uh, again, Lawrence Tierney was a contemporary of my father's. I, I, you know, and I never knew 
whether they tended bar in the same place or whether it was my father was one year and Lawrence Tierney was another year. He called him Larry. Um, and, and I never got the chronological dates and I never wrote them down because at the time I didn't know who Lawrence Tierney was. But since then, I've uh, you know, I started to love the guy as an actor. And from the book that Bert Carnes wrote, there are stories that are unbelievable. I mean, I think he said he was arrested 70 times in his life. Uh. And, you know, like even some stories like they're driving in Marine Park, Brooklyn with his cousins and they're in the car and. Lawrence Tierney rolls down the the window when a police car approaches and say, officer, you got a flat tire. And the the officers go out and check their cars. And then his nephew, his cousin says, do they have a flat tire? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Just giving him a hard time. But what, what about when he went into the church? Yeah, that we didn't get to in the interview because he asked for sanctuary at the Santa Monica Church in uh, the early 50s or whatever. I think about the time he was filming The Greatest Show on Earth with uh, Cecil B. DeMille. So, you know, Lawrence Tierney next week, I'm looking forward to it. And again, some of you are going to say, who is he? But he's a character worth remembering, too. Now... We had a, a little bit of a sad note. We found out that William Friedkin died. And William Friedkin is one of those directors who something happened that I'm not sure what. Some people say he was politically incorrect. And that was one of the reasons he got derailed. But this is a guy who directed The French Connection and The Exorcist mm-hmm. in a relatively short period of time in the late 60s and 70s. Probably the two best films, I would dare say, of that time. And certainly two of the best money makers of that time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, he passed away. Rest in peace. I mean, I know that was 50 years ago. But still, you know, great director who never probably lived up to his potential. You know, it wasn't like we had the old studio systems where these directors could churn out these movies and not necessarily have to wait for funding and things like that. Right. And it would just go. And, and, you know, a lot of times some great directors, maybe it wasn't the big, like Fritz Lang is one that comes to mind. You know, it wasn't the biggest budget movies and it wasn't the greatest films, but they were very good films that he could direct into the forties and fifties, maybe just standard Hollywood films, but they, in retrospect, they're a lot better than anything we see in today's world. And, oh, good grief, yes. You know, even though they weren't the biggest hits in Hollywood history, they still had something to say. And guys like William Friedkin don't have a studio system anymore. So, you know, you, you don't make money or you anger the wrong people, you're out. Well, because that's what makes no sense. It's like you're saying both of those movies, there was nothing like them before. They come on, people watch them, you know, they're... I don't know. I think do people get black? Were they getting black bottled back then, just for not? It's hard not to say, them. but we we're running out of time, so we'll see you next week, same times and uh, places. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. I hope you enjoyed Father Sarika today. Don't forget the Acting Institute, and we'll be next beyond next week with Lawrence Tierney. Thank you so much Bye-bye. for joining us.
Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.